Hello, everybody. Welcome to the seventh episode of Juris Students. Uh, we're here with a new guest today, Maya. Ayash and I are in Belgium, and Maya is joining us via Zoom. And we're going to talk about the topic of her bachelor thesis, Conflict Minerals in Congo, and what EU legislation can or cannot do to uh, help alleviate the situation. There will be some connections with one of our previous episodes about corruption and what international legislation has done to combat that. Uh, maybe we'll point out some of the similarities at certain points, but we'll definitely be exploring a very different landscape than usually in this episode. Yes, I'll say a few words about Maya. She's uh, also a third-year uh, bachelor student at European Law School, same as both of us, and she's a fellow Slovenian, so I'm very proud and happy for her to be here. Okay, great. So I say we just jump right into it. My name is Timo. My name is Aliash. My name is Maya, and you're listening to Jury Students. So before we begin this episode, uh, we do want to put a quick disclaimer in that some, some of the things we say, we say in this episode aren't necessarily reflection of our um, personal opinions, unless we obviously say that. And um, we're just kind of doing to reflect the public debate, to stir up some controversy for entertainment purposes, to, to really show what's happening, but also to look at all the sides of the argument. So... I suggest we, with that aside, we, I suggest we get started. And I think, you know, Maya, you're the, the best person to kind of lay the situation for us here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much, Alyash. So essentially, my bachelor thesis is kind of centered around the DRC and the conflict minerals, and especially the role of the EU companies in this whole situation. Uh, so what is happening is in the Democratic Republic of Congo, it's been for a long time since, you know, the Leopold II um, and how he has treated the mining communities with, you know, torture, killings, famine. Um, and then, it, you know, it's still there are still repercussions, there are still consequences that can be seen today. Uh, but essentially now it has shifted kind of towards the uh, responsibility of EU companies since they are the main um, well, stakeholders that uh, have some sort of impact on the DRC mining. So just to kind of lay the background and the whole gist of the story is EU companies are importing minerals and trading minerals with the um, DRC, so Democratic Republic of Congo. And um, they are essentially, unfortunately, I would say, um, financing armed groups in the mining communities. And what this means is by financing the armed groups or so-called rebels, they enable them to inflict the grossest violations of human rights. So this could be child labor, could be forced labor, gender inequalities, rape of women, uh, lack of medical care, uh, just corruption in general, prostitution, there, there could be so many. And mm. this is essentially the whole issue of it. And the main part that's being effective in the Democratic Republic of Congo is the eastern uh, part of Congo. So North Kivu, Katanga, and especially the mines that are being affected are the um, informal mines, which are so-called the artisanal small mines. 
um, because they're not regulated. Even the government doesn't know that they exist. I mean, quite a few of them, they're not aware that they exist. So it gives kind of a chance for armed groups to actually inflict these human rights without any repercussions. Um, so now what um, the international community is trying to do is enact a legislation um, to help combat this situation and kind of guide the European companies or international companies on how to uh, start responsibly sourcing uh, these minerals with the DRC. Maybe we can take apart the first part of uh, what you explained to us, because it's a it's it's pretty uh, complex situation, obviously. And we're talking about the region in eastern Congo, you said. And I read that this region, which is specifically really rich in natural resources, is about the size of the United Kingdom. So that that, that kind of gives a picture of the whole situation, how mm -hmm. difficult it is to control it. Um, but maybe we can start with what kind of natural resources are there and why this conflict is so concentrated in this one region in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so essentially the natural minerals, uh, one of the main one is cobalt, um, which mm -hmm. is very much used in all of our electronics. So you have our phones, you have in the cars and so many more. Um, and especially the Eastern Congo has a lot of these resources. It was actually estimated to be 70% or between 70 and 80% of all cobalt resources to be located in the DRC. And this is the main reason why Eastern Congo is mm -hmm. in the, you know, the midst of this conflict. Um, and then alongside cobalt, you also have other minerals um, and uh, metals, which are tin, tantalum and tungsten. And then obviously gold as well. So this is kind of the gist of it all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, where would you say the the army comes into this? Because I heard you you said something about certain armed groups, and then they are the ones causing the you know gross human rights atrocities. But perhaps you could just elaborate on that a little bit about where you know who these um, is this the DRC's army like which army involvement are you talking about here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is essentially after the Leopold II, going back to history a little bit, just to give kind of a context. But after Leopold II, there has been kind of a complete deconstruction of the whole country. And it was kind of a chaos because there was no central government. I mean, they were trying to have a central government, but it was quite impossible because Funnily enough, only three people in the whole of DRC had university education, which is insane mm. thinking about how many people mm. actually live in the DRC. And so it was kind of a struggle for power. So every little group wanted to have a piece, wanted to have power over the DRC and especially over the mining communities, because that is where the money comes from, especially from the international community, right? So to answer your question, these groups are actually, you know, not related to the government, majority of them, because it's in the informal uh, mining communities. However, if the mines become completely formalized, it could also be that through the corruption of the actual government of the DRC, some of the armed forces will be connected to the government and supported by the government. And some of them actually already are. Yeah, I read that it's a whole, that 
um, I believe it was in in a UN report, um, or maybe even a US foreign uh, foreign ministry report that the main violator was actually the government, the Congolese government itself, that certain uh, generals had occupied, as it were, mines and. Um, even in situations where they were sent in in order to um, cleanse a certain region from an armed group, like some militia from Rwanda or something, that actually the army then kind of moved into that role of oppressor and actually had themselves child labor going on, child abuse, sexual abuse, and things like that. Exactly. So it's yeah. an ex extremely strange situation, right? Yeah, exactly. And this is the problem because the international community is also supporting formalizing all of these informal mines. Mm -hmm. And but this is an issue because the government itself is corrupt. So we're not sure if that's actually going to then solve the problems, right? But but let's talk about the informal versus formal. Because I think it's important for maybe, and you can probably explain this uh, the best, but what exactly is the difference? Because we're talking about formal versus informal, but then the government is corrupt. So presumably formal um, minds wouldn't necessarily be the correct solution either. So maybe you could just expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I think formal minds are seen to be more regulated. And I think the main difference is that they're actually... Um, identify, we know their location, uh, the government mm -hmm. reports where their location is. Plus, because we're aware of them, the international community can fund them, right? So this means that they can help them kind of construct a more, uh, you know, less hazardous environment for the workers. Um, and also the international community knows a bit better. It's more transparent on how the procedure and how the mining is being done. Whereas if we compare it to the informal, it, there's no records oftentimes of such informal mines. Um, and they're super hard to locate because of the, you know, generally lack of structure, uh, lack of, sorry, infrastructure. So it's hard to even get to those places. And that's why it's a perfect space for armed groups and governments not even knowing they exist. Mm -hmm. I, I just have one quick, quick question. When you, when you say international community, are you referring to the UN here or the EU or who is the main actor that is really trying to get these mines formalized at the moment in DRC? Mm -hmm. I think it's the UN. They're the main actors because they're um, issuing guidelines on how to responsibly resource minerals. But then we also have the US government. They also have been quite active with their I mean, they kind of made the first um, step that's a bit more mandatory than other legislation with their U.S. Dodd-Frank Act, Section 1502. Uh, and then now recently, um, also the EU, so the European Commission, they've also been a primary actor in actually enacting such due diligence leg legislation, you know, for responsible sourcing of conflicts. So I would say UN, EU and U.S. are kind of the main actors right now. Maybe we can transition our conversation into these legislative acts or these um, due diligence norms, like you said. It starts with the Dodd-Frank Act. Um, and I believe that the, the EU acts resemble that kind of standard as well, right? Where they at least take some inspiration from it. Yes. What kind of rules are we talking about here? Yeah, so essentially um, the US Dodd-Frank was enacted in 2010. 
And then afterwards, EU was inspired by, you know, the US Dodd-Frank Act and also with the international OECD guidelines on responsible conflict uh, mineral sourcing. And it is similar, but EU has kind of learned some lessons from the Dodd-Frank Act because essentially in the Dodd-Frank Act, the um, sourcing of gold was not included. And also the Dodd-Frank Act mm -hmm. was only centered on the DRC and the neighboring countries. So the scope was quite narrow. Whereas now with the EU legislation, they took a step further and they said it's, it's up to, you know, it can be any country. It's, it's a global scope as long as it's, you know, uh, conflict related. If there's conflict going on, conflict affected, it means that, you know, it, it applies. And secondly, they also included gold in the EU conflict mineral regulation. Uh, so the scope is much wider um, and they definitely are similar. However, they're both more or less basing it on companies having to um, report. So, so essentially what the, what the companies have to do is apply this scheme. So they have to identify uh, where their minerals are coming from exactly where they're coming from and then if they're from the conflict areas they have to kind of come up with a structure on how they're going to try to mitigate this um, and you know kind of not um, not really influence or have an input in the financing of armed groups and secondly they have to report all of these findings where they're sourcing it from how they're going to change it if it's in a conflict um conflict area and they have to report it to the eu commission or you know in the us to the proper institutions but the problem is that it's all based on i mean it's supposed to be mandatory but it's um, more or less no sanctioning system and this is why it's proven to be not as effective that's interesting and an another aspect is you mentioned that the european regulation does include um gold as opposed to the the american legislation but we've been talking right now about the drc and you mentioned before that they mostly mine cobalt and interestingly and you can confirm this i don't think that cobalt is actually included in the eu regulation yeah, they it is not included in the EU regulation. And after my in-depth research, I still haven't found a good reason why that is not the case. <laughs> do you have uh, any opinions on it? Like, what do you what do you think? I think in general, if we're just talking about legislation, it should be included, right? Because as we said mm. before, it's 70 percent of all cobalt res reserve. It's located in the DRC. So it should be included if you want to play the game of legislative approach to this issue. Um, but my views are a bit different on that because I don't agree with the legislative approach at all. Um, but if legislation is going to be applied, definitely should include cobalt. And one thing that should be mentioned and is noteworthy that the European Commission did say and that in 2023 they can they're going to review the regulation and going to, you know, probably impose harsher sanctions and harsher approach. So there's still room for improvement. But perhaps what is what do you think? Why wasn't cobalt included in the regulation? Is there a specific reason you found or? 
Yeah, this is this is the I haven't found any good reason apart from if I can think of it on the top of my head, it could be some lobbying. Uh, that's mm -hmm. that's the only reason I could think of. It would seem like, <clears throat> and maybe this is a bit, you know, of a conspiracy theory, but if mm -hmm. cobalt is such an important ingredient in things like car manufacturing, I believe, yeah, right? For batteries, yeah. Yeah, and then you have a country like Germany, which is producing right. a huge amount of the EU economy through cars, then, um, yeah, it's not... it's I. Maybe it is a bit of a conspiracy theory, but it doesn't seem too far-fetched to me to think that they would want to scrap that one key um, ingredient off of the list. Yeah, the thing is, the thing is also with the, my research, I did find, however, that the uh, international community, I think it was OECD, they did issue some guidelines on how to responsibly source cobalt specifically. And quite a few companies are reportedly following those guidelines. They're, of course, voluntary. Mm -hmm voluntary but um they did issue them and a lot of companies are i mean you know t doing it just because of the you know to have a better reputation and image i guess so it's it's, yeah. it's not non-existent at least yeah I, I read that apple actually designated cobalt as a conflict mineral in 2014 and actually has its own kind of audit requirements for where they source their cobalt and they actually removed some cobalt suppliers a couple of years ago so perhaps i think this is a good transition to move into solutions to this issue right so what we talked a little bit about the legislative issue now you see apple is kind of taking uh, some steps on their own to try and fix this so perhaps we can kind of move into a broader discussion of w w what's What's the solution to this? And if there is a solution? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are two ways to go about this. One is to improve the legislation, the current legislation that we have. Um, and this could be done, you know, to broaden the scope. So to include cobalt, to include some of the other minerals, such as lithuanium, uh, that's also not included. Um, it could be, you know, for the Dodd-Frank Act to include all regions, so globally, not only includes the DRC and neighboring countries. Um, also, not all companies are um, f do fall under the scope. It's only upstream companies, so downstream companies are not really affected at all. So you can also broaden the scope here. Uh, you can have a stricter or actually a sanctioning system because at the moment there are no penalties imposed, which is you know what most academics have been complaining about, and rightfully mm -hmm. so. Um, so and also the kind of imposing this reporting um, obligation on the companies, you know, and nobody really checks how they're doing their investigation, how they're doing their reporting. So this could also be very much bias uh, and misused by the companies. So this is just kind of a few of the ways that the legislation can be changed. But then the second way you can approach this issue is more in a social way and more looking at the, you know, the um, kind of corruption and governance of the DRC, which I think is kind of missing and which, in my opinion, is the proper way to go about it but i don't know what do you guys think would you rather approach a legislative or a more social approach well <clears throat> reading about the dodd frank act and similar acts uh has kind of convinced me that it doesn't work too well because um things happened like mines uh which 
were, you know, totally illegal in that sense after the Dodd-Frank Act just kind of vanished off of the grid and either were being mined by militias or children or et cetera, et cetera, or all of the miners. And this is a really shocking thing I read. They were put out of work and some of them actually found jobs with the militia, which is such a crazy mm -hmm. thing, you know, but it's kind of predictable in that type of situation where if you take a mining region where the only thing they have is mining and maybe there's not too much agriculture um, and there's a lot of poverty there, then people are obviously going to gravitate towards whatever they can find. No, exactly. I, yeah. I, yeah, I, I would just want to yeah, add on that is in those mining communities, the there is nothing else you can do. You know, the land is not very fertile for anything else. And even if it would be, the, the miners don't know the practices, how to properly conduct agriculture. You know, they don't know mm. all they know their whole lives was how to mine. And now if you take that away from them and, you know, especially with these informal mines, they're located, you know, I don't know, in the middle of nowhere with lack of infrastructure. So you can't even go to main cities that you take away their whole livelihood. So it's. It's very frustrating. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I want to kind of bring uh, another another aspect to this. And is it's the fact that a lot of these mines and a lot of, I mean, I guess informal mines as well, are are financed by, by Russia and China. And I think that's something that I read. And it's, it's a big problem across Africa in general, I would say, is that you have, you know, countries that don't necessarily have the same standard as, for example, the European Union on human rights abuses coming in because you know for example china doesn't necessarily have the natural resources in their country so they're really looking for other areas that they can exploit and in that sense i think that's an issue where that's something i wanted to bring up to see what you guys think about you know we have also the other actors on the stage here with lots of money uh a very strong military presence, diplomatic presence in these areas that are funding these mines and, and taking the profit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is why I would say my opinion is we're focusing on the wrong stakeholders here with the legislation because the focus is essentially on EU companies, right? On importers of mm -hmm. minerals. When mm -hmm. in reality, I think we should be focusing on the government, especially I would say on the Democratic Republic of Congo government because they are the one accepting the money and they're not giving it to the mine workers. Definitely not. Um, but, but would you say that kind of brings up a, a wider issue in just, we can kind of broaden the scope here, but not just DRC, but this is kind of a, an African issue or, or a developing country issue in general, is you have these governments that are just so corrupt that obviously the solution would be to make these governments not corrupt, but how do we do that? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that statement that African countries in general, I mean, I don't want to generalize, but it, it is, you know, factually supported, I would say that they, the governments are quite corrupt. Um, I can't speak for all of the countries in Africa because I've only done most of my research on the Democratic Republic of Congo. But I would say it's not just the government, it's also the, the traders of minerals, right? So the connecting link between the DRC and the EU companies, because... Uh, what, I've, what I've actually found out during the research is um, they say, okay, so for one kilogram of gold or work, sorry, one kilogram of some minerals is 10 euros, for example. Mm -hmm. And then they mine, the mine workers mine, give the gold to the trader 
And when they come to this, okay, now you have to pay me, they actually say, oh yeah, you know, the mineral uh, market in the international community, so in EU has crashed, so I can only give you four euros. Um, You know, which is corruption with the traders as well. It's corruption everywhere, not just the government. But that is a tough issue to tackle when you're talking about EU on the EU level. Because obviously... we don't want to be accused of, uh, you know, propagating neo-colonialist type of attitudes where right. you That's want to say, problem. no, I'm going to get in here, I'm going to get my hands dirty and I'm going to fix the whole country. That's absolutely not something the EU can, you know, can do anymore and never should have done because we're the ones who messed it up in the first place. Uh, so in that sense, I do see a pretty strong argument to say, maybe we can't go there and actually change the situation but we can at least ask some accountability from our own companies that we're not funding that type of chaos and corruption but but i would say then the problem you have there is that you have other actors in the world that are Mm. are willing to take that step to go into a country and to i get air quotes fix it you know in in their opinion or to exploit it and that's kind of why i brought up china and russia is that is it possible that you know, Europe will, if it goes away from these cobalt mines, if it goes away from mining these minerals, eventually fall behind in, in technological terms, you know, whether we will just rely more and more and more on Chinese production even more. Mm-hmm. But I mean, then if you ask the EU companies to take accountability and you, so what, then you have to also ask them to fix it, but they can't fix it as we Mm-hmm. kind of established before you know they can't physically go there and fix it they can invest money and give money to the drc but they don't know how they're going to use it you know so then yeah. it's, it's yeah. how, how you can hold them accountable for what because also then if you say okay you can't import minerals from those conflict areas well then again it goes back to we're going to take away the livelihood of so many miners you know it's just this yeah. vicious cycle is it possible that perhaps this is something that needs to be done by consumers that we have to take a stand and say well no we're not going to buy a tesla because they they've bought you know cobalt from this and that company which owns mines in the drc yeah this is also something that i've been talking about with some professors that are doing their research on this And they also said it's a lot on the consumers as well and their choice in deciding not to kind of buy products that have this cobalt and from companies that are mining in the conflict areas in the DRC, for example. Uh, But the thing is, those products are usually more expensive. And again, you know, even in the international community, you have poorer communities that can't afford to have such high price products. So it just goes back to this cycle, you know, they, they can't afford it. So, of course, they're not going to buy the um, the expensive version. But what consumers mm-hmm. can do, I think, is just buy less, um, just buy, not buy non-essential stuff, because I feel like we buy phones that last us one year and then the new iPhone comes out. You want to buy another one. It's just have the iPhone for five years, you know, be more wise in your choices. I think that's the only, yeah, I don't know, positive thing a consumer can do. Because then we're back at defunding the the miners, though, aren't we? Yeah. But yeah, you can't, you can't really, I think, 
something's become pretty clear in the discussion is that there's no solution really maybe you could think like the greater independence of the mining communities that every mining community with their own mine has more autonomy and kind of is in control of the price that they sell their uh, resources at the way in which they mine uh, how much they mine how much they work things like that i could imagine would be valuable and since congo has like close i mean they don't have a monopoly on these resources but it's getting pretty close right they have a huge amount of the market and they can afford to i think make the mining a bit more you know expensive the process and have the price go up worldwide it's pretty it's pretty insane how you know drc is really like a very very rich country Mm. yet we see it as one of the poorest yeah yeah no i i definitely agree with you timo i think one of my proposed solutions also in the thesis is just to implement better education systems so then the miners Mm. could also know what's happening in the you know international market outside especially with relating to minerals so they're not so left in the dark um and a second point that I also wanted to bring out, which is a very interesting point I found during my research, is there was a survey and a research made where a couple of academics went to the DRC and they asked the mining community in the informal mines, especially children, um, how they're fe- how, why, what are the reasons they're working, how they're feeling. And it was actually found that a lot of them, the you know, child labor, the reasons for it is because they don't have anything else to do. You know, the, they can't go to, they don't have education. Their parents have to work in the mines, which means that they can't leave the small children alone. So they have to take them with them uh, to the mining sites and then they work, you know, because mm-hmm. oftentimes it's also cheaper labor force to employ children in mining communities. So. Again, it is, it's not just EU companies contributing, it's so much more to this. And actually it was found that children are quite happy with the working conditions, which for me was super surprising. But most of the children were actually okay with working there and, and they weren't working in hazardous conditions. So also an interesting counter perspective to what the international community keeps on advocating against. Um, yeah, but I think definitely implement educational system. Yeah, maybe you could... Something I always picture is if, if they owned the mines, if, if the village next to the mine actually owned it, you know, what would happen? And if you didn't have these military groups, but how do you do that? That's almost impossible. Right. I think that's like a, yeah. an issue that's so inherent in, in DRC and a lot of other African countries. It's how to how to get control over all these kind of tribal differences that a lot of these communities have and how they just control their mind and that's their livelihood Mm. and how you know the drc is huge and how you know i think it's it's in under some some uh facts 100 million people that's you know one fourth of europe and one fifth of europe and so you have these central governments that perhaps cannot or have no interest in controlling this huge land that they have 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's been shown that they they're more the government of the DRC is obviously more interested in the eastern part of Congo, which the reason being, yeah. you know, because mm-hmm. it's most rich in minerals. And so I would say it's a quite a safe bet to say they're not interested in more informal artisanal mining communities. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you know, with this formalization that we were talking before and this monopoly, international community seems to be supporting this. Uh, which is a weird thing because they know that the government is corrupt. So this is why I, I can't wrap my head around it, really. Yeah, It's all profit-seeking, right? Yeah, it's it does remind you of the Belgian colonial times in the Congo when it was really just a kind of exploit, not a kind of, a, just a total exploitation only for material gain with little or no real consideration of the people who were suffering there at that time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least now, I think with these legislations, the international community has a dialogue. They have a bit Mm. more transparency on what's going on because there's more research done on the ground of the DRC. So I think that's definitely a big plus with these talks about legislation and enactments. But now that we've done this research, let's actually try to make an impactful, um, you know, an impact positive impact Mm. not via legislation because this in my opinion does not work well but more social solutions i think that's a a perfect way to kind of bring this episode to to an end yeah maybe we can summarize some things we've talked about we started by discussing the situation in uh, eastern congo where the extremely rich natural resources have led to or exacerbated conflicts between militia, the army and locals uh, and how that situation is extremely complex and European and American legislators have tried to address it but really in an insufficient way Mm -hmm. Um, and we've discussed the possibility to kind of uh, is that that a right word re-enfranchise the local communities and to give them back power over their mining uh, operations and whether that might be a way to go forward in a kind of utopian world. Maya, is there anything you would like to add to the end of the conversation? Maybe a food for thought for the listener? Yeah, maybe just um, to kind of urge the international institutions to really look into it from a broader perspective, not just from an EU selfish perspective, but look into the DRC, its poor governance, poor enforcement, and maybe try to establish a dialogue with the government. Um, And secondly, for all the consumers out there, just buy less. That's all I can say. Just buy less. Mm -hmm. All right. I guess you heard it here. So thank you everybody for listening um this was episode seven of jury students i want to thank uh maya uh from my and timos um to thank her for coming onto the podcast um and yeah explaining this really really interesting and complex area of not only the law but also just life in general so mm-hmm. thank you everybody and um goodbye